Thank you, Keith. Well, that was a real upper, right, there at the end. Um, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor here at uh, Leewood Campus of Christ Community, and it's great to be with you. And uh, that passage that Keith just read, um, it brings us really to a new part of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've been with us since January, we've been several months in Matthew. And what we've actually done, if you've noticed, is we've kind of broken Matthew up in, into several kind of subsections, each with its own kind of title and, and graphic for the, for the series. And this is uh, a new place we're entering today. We, if you remember way back when we looked at the strange kingdom that Jesus was bringing, primarily we kind of looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then the last few weeks, we've looked at the strange king Jesus is, the, the, how unexpected he is as a Messiah. And uh, this week, we're really beginning a new section on what are the, the kind of the strange people <laughs> that God calls into his kingdom. What does it look like? What does your life look like when you say yes to Jesus, when you become his follower, when you become his disciple? That's really what this passage that we just read was all about. And, and there's lots in this passage we probably can't get to all of it. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know I will disappoint you, but um, he, he, Jesus gives us three broad principles, three broad principles of what it means to be his follower in the world, what it looks like to respond to King Jesus. And here they are. If you're taking notes, right, this is, you can write these down. We're to share in his mission, Jesus's mission. We're to share in his offense, and we're to share in his power. His mission, his offense, and his power. So first, we're gonna, we, we share in his mission. And you really, to get this, you really have to remember what Matthew's been doing these last few chapters in his book. And basically, the picture he's been painting, we've seen Jesus going all around town, all around Israel, especially in the north, in Galilee. And it's like he's on a mission. It is nonstop healing, delivering, preaching, teaching. Here's how Matthew actually summarizes this, that whole part of his book in at the end of chapter 9. It says, when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, it's out of this overflow of compassion from Jesus that he's basically working himself to the bone nonstop. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, where we're at this morning, he turns to his closest followers, his 12 disciples, and he basically says, okay, guys, training wheels are off. It's now time for you to do exactly what you've seen me do. I'm sending you to do what you've seen me do. He says, go out into Israel, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Okay, these are all things that we have seen Jesus doing in the last few chapters, and Matthew wants us to see the parallel. There's no difference between Jesus's job description and that of his disciples now that he's sending. He's saying, go out, you're on my mission, says Jesus. Now, when you read a passage like this, uh, you, you have to keep in mind there are several parts uh, that are unique to the time and place where Jesus said these words, uh, especially with the disciples in this moment. So, for example, Jesus says, go out to the, to the towns of Israel Go to Israel first. Don't go to the Gentiles. Now we know later on, Jesus will hint that that mission eventually does go to the Gentiles. He says, you're going to bear witness before the Gentiles. But he says, for now, for the 12, just go to Israel. Okay, that's not for us today. That mission has expanded. That's really the end of Matthew's book. Um, we're, not, we're called to go to everybody. But for the mo here's why I bring this up. For the most part, for the most part, in general, in the New Testament, the disciples are really representative of you and me. 
We are supposed to see ourselves in their stories. We are supposed to look at Peter's denial of Christ and think, I would have done that, or I did do that, I have done that. We're supposed to look at doubting Thomas, who doubts that Jesus rose from the dead, and say, I doubt, we doubt. You see, see, we're supposed to see ourselves in their story. They kind of represent us in the Gospels, and this story is no different. Matthew wants us to think, he wants us to read these words in, in Matthew 10 and think these are for us. We are being sent on his mission in this moment. We are to share in this mission. And, and, and so one of the first things you see happens to you when you respond to Jesus and you say, yes, I want to follow you. Jesus will look at you and he will say, that's great. I love it. Now go and get out. Go. Go on my mission. Go to Israel and Samaria and the ends of the earth and preach repentance and faith and preach my good news, preach my kingdom. Go. Go heal diseases and meet people's physical needs. Go meet them in their affliction. Go free the oppressed, not just the demonically oppressed, but the politically, the racially, the economically oppressed. Go go raise the dead. Marriages, relationships, institutions, lives. Go raise the dead. Go welcome the outcast. Cleanse the leper. Go associate yourselves with people that your culture, your society says don't have anything to do with these people. Go find the unclean and bring them in. Go in my mission. I'm sending you out. So Jesus sends these 12 ordinary guys out. These are not seminary graduates. These are not successful people by the world's standards. They're not particularly well, they're just regular guys. And this too is Matthew's commentary on the church. We too are nothing special. But Jesus looks at us and he says, if you want to follow me, go now and finish what I started. Go. And it's so obvious here, we cannot miss this, that you can't accept Jesus' message without joining him in his mission. This is a package deal. You've got to go with him. We're to share in his mission. We're to look at our city and our neighborhood or our school our workplace, our friendships, our families with the same love and compassion that Jesus did when he saw sheep without a shepherd. That's our posture. That's our tone for how we're to live our lives if we're to follow him. And and this is going to sound like a massive understatement, which it is. But this calling that Jesus has on our lives is really, really hard and you see it uh, in, in these, uh, when, he t- when he tells the disciples what it's going to look like for them to go on this mission. The more you read this passage, actually, the harder it becomes. There are these incredible tensions that Jesus tells us we're going to have to live in to love people the way he loved them. And they're right, they're right here in verses 5 to 15, if, if you look for them. I'm just going to point out a few because they're important. Jesus says, for example, in our lives on his mission... We're to confront people's sin and serve them humbly with everything we have. Jesus' stump speech, if you remember way back in the beginning of Matthew, it's summarized, repent for the kingdom is near. Repent, okay, that word, repent. Go and tell people the way they are living is wrong and destructive. Tell them there's a judgment coming and shake the dust off your sandals when they reject you, but serve them, provide for their needs, even when they hate you, and love them as I have loved them. That's the tension. See, there's a reason that most believers and most churches are are usually only good at one half of that tension. 
There's some churches that are real that love to tell the truth. They love to confront, but they don't know how to love people in the middle of that. And there are some churches that care for lots of people, all kinds of people. They provide for them. They're active in their communities, but they lack the courage often to confront people's sin and to point out their idolatry and to say, Jesus is better than what you're doing. Repent and believe in him. It's because doing both is really, really hard. There's a reason for that. And yet that is exactly the, that is the, that is the tension Jesus is sending us into as his church, as his people. We must represent him in our words and our deeds, in grace and truth. He also points out another example. He says we've got to, we've got to, to, to love giving our resources as, as his people, being hospitable and generous and having the capacity to do that and to support God's mission, to support his church, to serve our city. And the way I've kind of summarized that in my own mind when you read the text is you, you've got to love what money can do, but not money itself. Jesus says in verse 9, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, which is the ancient wallet, for the laborer deserves his food. Now this last part, the laborer deserves his food, that, that means the mission will go forward only on the generosity of the Christian community. As the disciples went from town to town, Jesus saying, your room and board is, is, is donation-based. People are going to hear your message, they're going to respond, and they're going to invite you into their homes, and that's how the mission is going to go forward, okay? Jesus is implying that we've got to be generous to be people on his mission. He doesn't really give us another way to do this. So we've got to work hard and steward our money well. That's all important, but not so that we can have more, so that we can give more away. And we serve people and we give to people. We support partners. We, 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 we follow where God's leading as best we can without expecting a financial return. Because we received without pay. So we give without pay. And there's a, that's, a, that's incredible tension to live in. Now, and there's many more here we could, we could look at. We could spend all day looking at those. But I want to stop and just, you, you, you're getting the sense of what's going on here. I've got to stop and ask, do we live like this? Are we even on the same page as Jesus here about what our lives are supposed to be like? Do we live like we're sent or do we live like we're settled, like we're comfortable? Like, don't rock the boat. Do we live like we have a mission? Do we have a mandate from God himself? Or are we just trying to get to Saturday? Is that the goal of our week? You know, I work um, at a church. Hopefully that's obvious to you at this point. Um, <laughs> We have a mission statement as a church to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. And I love that. I love that part of my job, part of our role as leaders here at the church is, to, is when an opportunity comes or a new partnership comes or a new request comes or a new idea comes, it's the first question we, are, we try to discipline ourselves to ask is, is this a distraction from or is it an important part of our mission? Does this help us be a caring family of multiplying disciples, or does it hurt us from being a caring family of multiplying disciples? And many of you, are, you're, you're in the workplace, you're, you have mission statements there. You've got these organizational, right, phrases, sentences that help you make strategic decisions. That's what they're there for. They help you decide, where should we allocate money? Where should we send resources? What, what kind of research should we be doing? It's supposed to inform everything you do, right? That's what a mission statement does. Okay, I have one of those too. 
And yet how often I go home and I completely forget that I have a mission statement over my entire life. And it's given to me right here in this text. But I don't apply it to how I parent or how I husband or how I spend my time or how I spend my money or how I interact with people who don't know Jesus, you see. I'm settled. I'm comfortable. Or I'm busy or I'm distracted or I'm tired or whatever, whatever I want to say, whatever excuse I have. The last thing I want is to be sent. And yet, we are sent. Your life right now, your vocation right now, your job right now, your marital status right now is exactly where Jesus wants to use you. This is a really crude way of putting it, okay? But it's, it's, it's true to the text. There are lepers in your life that only you can cleanse because of who you are and where God's put you and how he's wired you. There are demons only you can cast out. There is oppression only you can confront. There are dead things, there are broken things and people in your life that only you can raise from the dead. He's empowered you to do it by his spirit and he sent you to do it on his mission. See, the Christian life is not primarily about getting my needs met, your needs met, my spiritual tank filled. It's about being sent on a mission with Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, is this how you view your life? Are you sent or are you settled? You are are not an accident. Don't ever think that. You are not an afterthought in God's plan. He's called you and he sent you on his mission. So we're to share in his mission. We're also to share in his offense. Okay, I'm going to read this section again just so it hits us. the way it's supposed to, starting in verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So Jesus says, I'm sending you on mission, and I'm sending you to the wolves. To love as I've loved is to offend as I've offended. You're you're going to catch major heat for following Jesus. It's a promise he makes here. Sometimes even persecution and and violence. Jesus' words here have borne true in the history of the Christian church for 2,000 years, and it still happens today. I, I wanted to show you guys this. There's this old graffiti from Rome. It's dated to 200 A.D., um, and uh, I'll explain what's happening here. So there's a, a, a man being crucified with the head of a donkey. Okay, that's not a compliment. Um, that's Jesus. And then there's this young man kind of on the side with his hand up. It's a, it's a picture of him worshiping. And underneath it's scratched, Alexamenus worships his God. Okay, it's a mockery. He's making fun of this young man for being a Christian, 200, uh, uh, 200 AD. And uh, I literally, I kid you not, I was on uh, Facebook uh, kind of while I was writing the sermon, don't judge me, um, but everyone needs kind of, you know, a mental break, but I kid you not, 
I was scrolling through, and I, one, of, one of our young people that's a part of our church family, a friend of his posted on his, his Facebook page making fun of him for his faith. It was a meme. It was a picture making fun of uh, Jesus. And it was like, it's the same thing. 2,000 years later, it's the same thing. And there are countries today where Christians are thrown in jail and their homes and their businesses are confiscated or people are even uh, executed and killed simply for proclaiming Jesus as he called them to do here. They are doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do and what's happening to them is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You see, Jesus is very offensive. Make no mistake about that. If you've, if you've never been offended by Jesus, you probably haven't really met him yet. If you haven't walked out on a Sunday morning from a sermon or from a small group conversation or from just reading the Bible and you you haven't walked away and thought, I don't want this to be true, this part. I don't want to do this. This sounds really hard and I don't like it. If If that hasn't happened to you, you probably have not taken Jesus' claim on your life seriously enough. Jesus will get in your face and he will offend you and he will use you to offend other people. And sharing in that offense is part of what Jesus is asking us to do. He's literally sending us into it. He's throwing us to the wolves. And we need to take that very seriously. Now, before I get into why Jesus is offensive and how we're to share in that offense, I need to say what that isn't. So notice Jesus, Jesus says, people will hate you for my name's sake. Jesus does not say people will hate you because part of being a Christian means you're supposed to be a jerk to people. Okay, it's a big difference. Jesus is asking us to be bold, but he's saying, but don't be stupid. Don't invite hardship into your life unnecessarily or offense to people. He says, if you're being run out of this town, go to the next town. Don't stay there and make it worse. And the big picture he gives us and how to live this out, it's a a picture in verse 16. He says, be innocent as doves. So don't lie, don't cheat, don't manipulate, but be cunning as serpents. Be smart about it. Jesus is offensive enough. We're going to get to that. If people don't like you, make sure it's because of him and not because of you. We don't need to turn people off to him with our anger, with our us versus them, with our social media posts. Be wise, be wise people. But, and here's the Here's the real point. But no amount of wisdom will get us out of offending people in Jesus' name. It's going to happen. He makes that very clear. And when he says all men will hate you, he doesn't literally mean all people because then we would have no church, right? Certainly some people are called in, but what he means is all kinds of people will hate you. Every kind of person. And you see that every culture, every age group, every sexual orientation, every time and place in history has been offended by Jesus. Equal opportunity offense. This is, this is pervasive and it's universal, this offense. Why is that? Why is Jesus so offensive? Well, there are several reasons. There are many. A big one is the very nature of his claims. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the Lord of the universe. And you look at the Gospels, why does he get in trouble? And I, I thought of John chapter 8. In John 8, he's debating with the religious teachers. And they're looking at him and they're saying, you're talking about Abraham, our father, like you know him. You're not 50 years old. 
Why, why are you talking this way? Jesus' response is, well, before Abraham was, I am. So they're arguing with him up to this point. After this point, they're trying to kill him. Why? Because I am is the divine name. When the God, in the Old Testament, when God sends Moses to Egypt, he says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. Jesus is saying, I know I look like I'm 30 years old, but I've been around a lot longer than that. That's in, that is incredibly offensive. What do you say to that? Because I can't negotiate with that, can I? I can't pick parts of Jesus to like if he's truly king of kings and lord of lords. And Tom talked about this a little bit last week. If he simply claimed to be a wise teacher, I could judge him as a teacher. That was easy. But when he says, I am, I can either hate him as a liar and run from him, or I can submit my entire life to him. I have no middle ground. I cannot say to Jesus, I like your resurrection, but I do not like your teaching on sexuality. I cannot say that. There's no room for Andrew's opinion there. And nobody wants that. You don't want that. I don't want that. This is why individuals hate him. This is also why nations and countries and religious institutions hate him. He claims to have more authority than the state over your life, than the culture, than any human institution. He offends individuals and he offends whole power structures. Read the Gospels. That's what he's doing. Because his claims are incredibly offensive about himself. His claims are also very offensive because of what he says about you and me. He does not come into the world with a self-improvement plan. He doesn't say these simple steps will get you your best life now. He says, you are such a wreck. You are such a mess. You are such a failure spiritually that only I can save you. And even the good things you think you do are simply your pathetic attempt to justify yourself. You're weak. You're pitiful. If I don't intervene, you're doomed. That's his good news to the world. You get zero credit with Jesus. Zero. He loves you deeply, but he is not impressed by us. The basic message of the Christian faith, you need to be saved by grace. That's offensive. And he claims, he claims to be the only way, the only way to know the true God. The Romans did not care that the Christians worshiped Jesus. No problem. We got room in the pantheon. I mean, we don't like him, but if you like him, that's great. Do it. But it was when the Christians also said, but also, guys, we will not worship Caesar because he's just a man. There's only one way to know God is Jesus' son. That's what got them sent to the Colosseum. He makes an exclusive claim to the truth. That's not a modern offense. That's a human offense. That's been true for thousands of years. No one wants to hear that. If you've ever wondered why Jesus was crucified, just <laughs> you have to remember, just think for a minute. What would you do? What would we do to a man who claimed to be God, demanded that we worship him, threatened a judgment on you and your family and your country if you ignored him, if you didn't repent? What would you do? What would I do? This is incredibly offensive. And as we follow this person, we will share in that offense because we believe it is all true. Every word. 
That's offensive. Not just true for me. True for everyone. Whether you accept it or not. That's the Christian claim. And that knowledge, on the one hand, it should empower us to a kind of life that is humble and serves. We know we are saved by grace. That should make us a humble and servant people, unlike the world has ever known. At the same time, it will expose us to a fury that you still see all over the world today. So I've got to ask, are we willing to get uncomfortable for him? Are we willing to offend as Jesus offends? Now, there are some of you here today who know this whole world better than I do. You have, you've lived what he said. You've lost brothers and sisters. You've lost mothers and fathers. You've lost children who've rejected you and your faith, who've turned from you because of Jesus. Some of you are from cultures here that coming to faith in Christ, you lost everything. It cost you everything. You get it better than I do. But for others of us, probably for most of us in the room, it is much, much easier to just slip by in life without outing yourself as a Christian, right? It's so easy. It's not hard. I'm a pastor, so people already think I'm crazy. But you guys have real jobs, right? I mean, that was a joke, by the way. But <laughs> at the same time, it's not. You have real jobs. <laughs> It's hard to let people know what you believe, even when it's appropriate, even when it's, it's natural to come up. It's really hard. I was listening to a podcast called Startup, um, and it's about these entrepreneurs, and they, they basically just record all of their conversations about what it's like to start a business. And uh, the two co-founders are talking, and they're talking about uh, workplace diversity, and they're saying, okay, how are we doing in workplace diversity? We've got uh, you know, how, I mean, you know, the genders and the, uh, how are we doing racially? How are we doing uh, sexual orientation? How are we, are we pretty well represented here? And then one of them uh, kind of stops and says, you know, wait a minute. I don't think we have any Christians on staff here. And the other one's like, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but, you know, um, they're really not our target market. Uh, and, you know, we're in Brooklyn here. That's pretty small. There's not a ton of, you know, that's a small demographic here in Brooklyn. Um, and then literally on the recording, there's this knock on the door, and this producer that works for them walks in, and he says, you know, I'm listening to you guys. Actually, I'm an, I'm an evangelical Christian. <laughs> and they go, no way. Come on, you know, come in. We want to talk to you more about that. And they say, why, did it, why, didn't you, uh, why did it take you so long? Why didn't we know that? And he says, you know, I didn't want you to think I was crazy. I didn't want you to, 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 to dismiss my opinions in the workplace because, you, you don't, you, because I believe this. I didn't want you to think I had nothing to contribute here. Does that at all sound familiar? I was here on Wednesday night uh, with some of our high school students. It was a, it was a blast. And uh, uh, a young man named Matt Miller um, was sharing with the whole group how hard it is. And I saw a lot of nodding heads. How hard it is to be a Christian in a public school. How hard it is to obey sharing him in, in, in that environment when it costs you credibility. And it costs you sometimes relationships. I totally get it. And I wanted to look at him in that moment and say, it gets better, but it doesn't, does it? But and yet, this is what Jesus has called us to do. And it probably starts as simply as letting people know what you believe and letting God take over, seeing where God takes that conversation and that relationship over time. It's probably what that looks like, but that's hard enough, isn't it? But here's the good news. We don't just share in the mission. We don't just share in the offense. We, we share in the power of Jesus. 
When Jesus talks uh, to, his, uh, to us and his disciples about the hardships that will come by following him and being on his mission, he talks about persecution and rejection and division. We really want him to say something like, but don't worry because I will rescue you in that moment. Don't worry, they can't hurt you in that moment. But here's what he actually says, verses 19 to 20. He says, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He says, don't worry, because I will be there with you. That's his promise. You'll have me. You'll have my power through the Spirit. You'll have the words and strength of my Father in that moment. Don't be anxious about this life I'm sending you into because you'll have me and that is enough. And it doesn't feel like enough, does it? It doesn't sound like enough. But it has been enough for the whole history of the church. There are amazing stories of followers of Jesus being put to death, glorifying God because they felt him in that moment. His presence with them was enough in their life. And I thought, you know, from the first martyr, Stephen, in the book of Acts, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God as he's being stoned to death. To Paul the Apostle, when he writes in 2 Timothy, he's in Rome, he's on trial for his life. He says, no one came to my trial, everyone abandoned me, no one wanted to share in my offense, no one wanted to be arrested with me, and he said, that was fine, because the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even as Paul says, even as I know my life is being prepared as an offering to God, he knows he's going to die. In fact, there's only one person in the whole Christian faith, the whole history of the faith, who was persecuted and suffered and died alone. Do you know who that is? It was Jesus. You see, there's a reason Jesus sweats blood in the garden before his arrest. There's a reason he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a reason that all these martyrs that came after him died a much more uh, strength-filled death than he did. Ever wondered why that is? It's because he was completely alone. The only one. So that we would never have to be. See, Jesus says at the end of the passage here, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, How much more will they malign those of his household? He says, if they've rejected me, they will certainly reject you. A servant is not above his master, but Jesus is the only master I know who made himself lower than all of his servants to die on a cross. What does that mean in the context of this? What does that mean? It means there's nowhere that Jesus is sending you or has sent you where he has not already been where he is not already at work. There is no pain he has not felt. There is no loss he has not endured. There is no shame he cannot understand. There are no chains he cannot break. There's no sin he cannot forgive. There's no soul he cannot redeem. There's no life he cannot use. That is his promise. And here we are, right, in Kansas City. We're spread out in all of our campuses with other believers and other churches around us in our vocations and our schools and our families and our neighborhoods and our PTAs and our sports leagues. And Jesus is saying, go, get out. I'm sending you. The kingdom is still at hand through you. Turn and follow me. Turn and repent. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what your life is for, 
or you question whether this calling, this, this mission is really for you, I cannot point you to a better master to follow than Jesus who lays down his life to make you and me a part of his story, a part of his mission forever. And what a beautiful story it is that he offers to you and me. So how will we respond? Let's pray to him now. Father, empower us today for your mission. Show us in our lives where you would have us go, what you would have us do. Give us in the moment the words to say and the courage to say it. Empower us to share the love of Christ for the world. Embolden us to share in the shame of the cross, even when the world rejects it. And we lift up our lives to you as an offering back to you because you withheld nothing from us, even the life of your own son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.